Starting in 2019, and until the recent change of administration, Peter Berkowitz served as Director of Policy Planning at the State Department. That's the government idea shop George Keenan established in 1947. Mr. Berkowitz holds a doctorate in political science and a law degree, both from Yale University. He was, and now continues, as the Tad and Diane Toby Senior Fellow at the Hoover Institution, Stanford University, where he studies, thinks, and writes about the principles of freedom, the American constitutional tradition, political ideas and ideologies, national security, Middle Eastern politics, pretty much anything he likes. Glad to be catching up with him so soon after his emergence from Foggy Bottom, among other things to learn what impact his adventure in government has had on him. Glad you're catching up with us too, here, Foreign Policy. Either the U.S. enforces some rules in the world, or there are no Every U.S. president has tried to diminish tension with Russia, has reached out to the Russians. Most of those have failed, especially when Vladimir Putin became the leader. They're still killing guys who joined the jihad in 1979 or 1980 or 1981 who are still in the We game. are seeing a ramp up in North Korean cyber capabilities over the last decade. Iran is basically putting forth these claims of nuclear innocence that they are doing nothing wrong, that there are no violations, and that's just factually not correct. You could see mass destruction within Israel as a result of this precision project that Iran has undertaken. So, Peter, welcome. Good to see you, if even only remotely, and get to talk to you. I mentioned that policy planning was established by George Keenan. If any listeners don't know who that is, I say... Go look it up. I believe George Marshall, Secretary of State, asked Keenan to create a policy planning department or staff, I guess is the correct term. And I believe he instructed Keenan, avoid trivia. I guess what Keenan meant was that the strategic arm of the State Department should see the big picture and, and not get bogged down in day-to-day minutiae. Now, so is that right? And more importantly, is that possible? First, Cliff, it's great to be with you. I'm delighted to be having a conversation, um, as you as you suggested, so soon after emerging from from foggy bottom. <laughs> uh, is that true about uh, about what the policy planning staff should do? For sure. Look, uh, eight nine thousand people work inside uh, the Harry S. Truman Building. Um, they staff regional bureaus that focus on regions of the world. They staff bureaus that focus on various functions like international organizations, science, technology, and, and so on. And these bureaus uh, really do have to contend with uh, the day-to-day challenges of international diplomacy that uh, a great power like the United States uh, confronts. Uh, they're always um, scurrying uh, anxious, dealing with the next crisis, putting out another fire. Somewhere, uh, uh, um, Secretary of State Marshall and George Keenan recognized you need at least a small group within the State Department who um, have both the privilege and the obligation to take a step back, see the bigger picture, think about, for example, where are the policies that the United States has implemented where are they going well and what could we do to improve or, or enhance them? Um, where are they falling short? Uh, m- most people don't like to hear about that, including in, uh, in federal bureaucracy. And what might alternatives look like? But not any old sorts of alternatives. The kinds of alternatives that are consistent with uh, the intentions, the aims, the understanding of foreign policy challenge challenges possessed by the present Secretary of State. So it falls to the the policy planning staff, the current policy planning staff, and I was director, we had around 22 or 23 full-time members to think through these kinds of uh, questions. In a way, we're like the U.S. Supreme Court. The U.S. Supreme Court has neither uh, purse nor sword. It doesn't control a budget. It doesn't control an army. We don't, uh, embassies don't answer to us as they do to various assistant secretaries. We don't have budgets to um, dispense or, or withhold. We have only the power of our reasoning about, uh, about affairs at state. And so it's our job, yes, to keep the secretary informed 
about the big picture, no less than in Kennan's day, to avoid trivialities. Now, other notable directors of policy planning would include, and I'm picking, I'm picking and choosing here, Paul Nietzsche, Walt uh, Rostow, Paul Wolfowitz, Peter Rodman. Uh, Big New Brzezinski held the job and went on to become President Carter's national security advisor. And Antony Blinken held the job, and now he's gone on to become uh, Secretary of State. So who of your predecessors uh, did you find inspiring as you thought about uh, taking this job? Well, as as you suggest, uh, um, I, I've had the chance to not occupy a position that was occupied by many distinguished figures. But really uh, and truly, I think um, all of us who have the opportunity to serve as director of policy planning operate in the shadow of, uh, of Kennan. Uh, and it's partly because of um, how the office was founded, what inspired it. Uh, as you know, Cliff, uh, some of our listeners probably already know, but it bears repeating. In 19, February of 1946, George Kennan penned what was, uh, what probably is still today, uh, the most famous and influential document ever produced by a State Department official, the so-called Long Telegram, in which he laid out, uh, the emerging Soviet challenge. Uh, and I suppose like many of my, uh, many of, uh, uh, my predecessors who were also successors to Kennan, uh, one of the first things I did upon being named uh, head of policy planning was reread the long telegram and then uh, read the uh, reread the sources of Soviet conduct, which is, uh, as you know, a foreign affairs article that followed the next year, elaborating on the uh, the Soviet challenge and an emerging challenge. So um, I can say that um, those essays had uh, had direct. Uh, and lasting impact on me. And one of the reasons, not only because um, they were so consequential in Kennan's day and because they set a standard, but because the summer of 2019 actually resembled 1946, 1947 in at least one crucial way. Uh, a new challenge was coming into focus. I don't say it emerged. The Soviet Union did not emerge in 1946 emerged several decades before. Uh, the Chinese Communist Party did not emerge in the summer of 2019. It's been operating for a, for a long time. What was emerging was a recognition that uh, in 46, that the Soviets represented the foreign policy challenge of the age for the United States to represent the threat to freedom of the age, free and open international order. Uh, similarly, uh, we recognize in the State Department, but here I really must um, give the credit where credit is due. Secretary Pompeo recognized, uh, and he reoriented the State Department around the recognition that the fundamental threat to a free and open international order in our age, and therefore a threat to freedom in the United States, is the Chinese Communist Party. And so uh, Kennan provided a way of thinking about uh, the challenge we face. And of course, the idea is not to mimic uh, Kennan for us. The idea was to be inspired how he responded to his challenge to inform how we would respond to our challenge. China is important. And I, I promise we, I want to come back to that because I got a bunch of questions about China and your work there. But let me, let me put that off for a second. That's a job, the director in particular, that a lot of people I imagine, you know, dream about and scheme about. <laughs> Um, and my impression is you were not such a person <laughs> and it's kind of fell into your lap, um, unexpectedly. And you said, well, all right, I'll, am, am I, am I correct in that? Am I telling tales out of school? Uh, you're not. I, during the first few months, I, uh, I, I would joke with friends. Yes, it's true. I, I'm living a dream as the head of the policy plan staff. The thing is, it's somebody else's dream. <laughs> so, um, Yes, I had been uh, in the fall of 2018. I had been minding my business, or uh, maybe other people would say meddling in characteristic ways. That as I was writing and teaching, in fact, I happened to be in Jerusalem in the fall of 2018, September, I guess, late summer 2018, when I got a call from the then head of policy planning, um, informing me that the Secretary of State was looking for um, a new member of policy planning who could uh, advise him in particular on Israel. Uh, Israel is a country 
whose um, uh, fortunes are close to the secretary's heart. He's devoted to a strong and prosperous and free and Jewish Israel. And so he's looking for someone who could who could uh, keep him informed about the bigger picture. Uh, I immediately responded, that's great. Give me a weekend and I'll send you a list of 10 people. And the response I got back to my surprise was, no, we'd like you. I said, well, uh, I'm very flattered, but that's impossible. Uh, three weeks later, I had agreed to do it for a year on a part-time basis. Um, and so uh, I, I arrived in January 2019, again, on a part-time basis, only to to help keep the Secretary of State informed about issues uh, surrounding Israel. And then uh, we don't we do not need to go into this uh, about seven into my uh, tenure as a as a part time member. The then head of policy planning uh, was dismissed and. To make a long story short, the uh, the secretary asked me if if I would step in. I, I was already there. I'm older. Um, I, uh, I had my security clearance. I was sort of the path of least resistance. And while well, um, a few voices in my head said, are you out of your mind? Uh, the voice that came out of my mouth said, sir, it would be an honor to serve. And so uh, so I, I began uh, my portfolio expanded greatly on uh, in August 2019. So a question that I think a lot of people who are wonky enough to listen to this podcast would would would, would want to know you were a political appointee you had to work with people who make their careers in government bureaucracies to a great extent there's some tension in that relationship no was it better or worse than you expected well how did that work out um i arrived at a uh, at a trouble troubled moment for the policy planning staff so i had my ha- hands full um i and and the team that uh uh, that I assembled a, a great group of uh, uh, two wonderful deputies, an excellent chief of staff, some young team. We, we had our work cut out for us putting just the policy planning staff on an even keel. Uh, I think we managed to do that within a few months. And I have to understand that probably over 90% of the State Department, uh, I think more, probably closer to 95%, is effectively permanent bureaucracy. And I use that term in a descriptive way, uh, in a neutral way, meaning these are men and women who work in the State Department, not at the pleasure of the Secretary of State. They're there before any new Secretary of State arrives. They will stay there after any particular Secretary of State uh, leaves. On the policy planning staff, which has, as I said, maybe somewhere between 20 and 25 members, actually we had a, uh, eventually a relatively high percentage of political appointees maybe 25 to 30%, meaning that still most of the policy planning team comes from within the State Department, career foreign service officers or career civil servants. The difference being foreign service officers also serve overseas, civil servants stay in Washington. So um, inevitably, you are um, the head of policy planning spends a fair amount of time working with career people. And then, of course, the bureaus, Regional bureaus, functional bureaus are um, are totally dominated by uh, by career people, and uh, it is uh, it is fair to say the newspapers reported on this that uh, tensions arose between um, uh, uh, the uh, some some of the career people and, and uh, the uh, Secretary Pompeo and. And, but we have to understand the multiple dimensions of those tensions. Some of those tensions are, are just the inevitable function of bureaucracy. There are people who spend a big part of their lives working in these bureaucracies, and then political appointees come in, uh, usually in, uh, in high elevated or supervisory roles. Um, in other words, you have the tension between the careers who often have um, really uh, on the ground expertise and, and po- political officials who uh, sometimes don't. And then you have the political tensions. I think, um, uh, I would, I think I'm not speaking out of school uh, in saying that uh, federal bureaucracies pr- 
tend to uh, lean in, in a progressive direction. Now, now of course, um, um, of course, it's one's professional responsibility to overcome or set aside one's political preferences and help the Secretary of State and help the administration conduct foreign policy. And let's just say that um, uh, some members of the per- permanent bur- bureaucracy are uh, better able to rise to that challenge than uh, th- than others. But the friction undoubtedly uh, created uh, challenges for um, for Secretary Pompeo and and for all of us who were passing through the, the State Department. Yeah, and my uh, and my reading is that the, the, it was the, it was harder in this administration than in others, though it's hard in all administrations. I think for the uh, for the for the for the president necessarily, particularly let's be honest, particularly if the president is a, a Republican, to, uh, to get a firm embrace of his policies and a commitment to uh, to implement them. I would you can comment on that, but also the, let me just add this to it. I assume your your takeaway is that it's really important to have political appointees. It's necessary and essential if the president and his secretary of state are going to do anything other than make speeches. Because there's no without them, the bureaucracy goes its own way. I, I think it's uh, I, yes, Cliff. That, that's well said. It's absolutely vital. Remember, the, at the end of the day, the State Department is a part of the executive branch. Um, it is designed to reflect uh, the will and the thinking and the priorities of the President of the United States and his his duly appointed people. Um, it is true that there is a conviction, one can find the conviction within the State Department, that somehow the State Department is its own separate branch of government, that US, official U.S. foreign policy is um, uh, arises out of the deliberations and the writings of career officials, but that reflects a constitutional misunderstanding. So in order for the State Department also to be democratically accountable, um, the president needs uh, his or her uh, team in place. That that's entirely uh, appropriate. Just as we want um, uh, 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 people, civilians running the uh, the Pentagon. All right, we'll move on to uh, issues. Uh, we'll start with China, which you raised before, and I said I had questions about that. Um, and you talked about the parallel with with the so with Russia than the Soviet Union. Here's the way it, it strikes me. Tell me what you think. After, at the end of World War II, there were people who were optimistic, let's say, and who thought, okay, we've been allies with the Soviet Union against uh, Nazism, against fascism. We should stay allies now. There's no real reason we have to be uh, enemies. Um, and they were disabused of that notion over the next few years after the war, as they saw that the Soviet Union had ambitions and was going to uh, essentially uh, assert its authority over countries that we had hoped we had liberated from Nazism and stayed under totalitarian rule for a very long time. The, I think Truman got this. I think obviously Eisenhower, 1949, the Soviets explode an atomic weapon. <laughs> so now also we've got that as a problem. So Keenan comes up with containment and his strategy and how we're going to deal with what we now know as the Cold War. With China, here's the interesting thing. It it seems to be going back to the 1970s. On a bipartisan basis, we we all embraced this theory that as China gets richer, it's going to get more liberal. It's going to get more moderate. It's going to be our strategic partner. It's going to want to participate in the liberal international rules-based order. Despite evidence over years and even decades, very few people challenged this theory until this administration, the, well, now this administration, the Trump administration, as you say, uh, your Secretary of State, Mike Pompeo, also I would say uh, very much uh, uh, General McMaster as National Security Advisor, uh, Matt Pottinger, the China expert on the National Security Council. They said, no, this is not what's happening. China, we may see China as our emerging strategic partner. China sees us as an adversary, a rival, somebody to best and beat. And we have to recognize this and figure out what to do about it. It shouldn't have taken decades to, to, to figure that out. Yeah, uh, you're absolutely right. And you uh, give an excellent summary of, um, 
of where things stood, how, how we got here. But we should also keep in mind, um, um, far-seeing and acute people might have, um, uh, and did, in 1917, 18, 19, uh, in the 1920s and 30s said, this new thing, Marxism-Leninism, it's totalitarian. Communism, by its very nature, destroys right, and it can't produce in the way that free markets do. Uh, Ken was writing three decades after the uh, uh, Russian Revolution. Um, now, of course, uh, lateness to recognizing the threat presented by the CCP is less defensible because we have the experience of, uh, of the Soviet Union. Nevertheless, you're absolutely right about um, the last four decades uh, in which American foreign policy was animated by the hope which has, uh, which has been, um, uh, finds much support in the political science literature that political liberalization follows economic liberalization. Um, actually, uh, well, th that's the thesis. This was the hope that was embraced. Um, we, we, in fact, in order to, uh, accelerate that inevitable tendency, we sought to engage China, welcome China into, uh, international organizations. And all the while, the Chinese Communist Party is uh, actually uh, maintaining that we remain faithful to the principles of Marxism-Leninism as interpreted by, interpreted by Mao. We continue to do so. Our loosening of the economy, our overtures to the West, should not be misinterpreted by the Chinese people. Um, and we envisage a world in which, uh, as China slowly um, gains power, makes up for its century of humiliation at the hands of Western powers from roughly the second third of the, um, beginning of the second third of the 19th century to the middle of the 20th century, um, we, will, um, we will develop our capacity so that one day, Beijing will be where it ought to be, at the center of uh, world order, which um, bears the imprint of socialism with, uh, with Chinese characteristics. Now you ask, you, um, how did we miss that for so long? The answer is we didn't pay attention to what the Chinese Communist Party was saying about its aims and intentions. Moreover, um, we didn't look at what China was doing. One example. A uh, few months after um, uh, I entered uh, um, position as director, I asked every member of the policy planning staff to produce a short memo, three to five pages on uh, China's inroads in your regional area or, or functional area. Every single member filled five pages with China's um worrisome, dangerous inroads in his or her area, Every starting with the Indo-Pacific, but certainly moving through uh, the Middle East, Africa, Europe, Western Hemisphere, the Arctic, you name it, and also within international, uh, within international organization. So we were also not looking at China's conduct. If we had been paying more attention to China's ideas, though, the pattern of its conduct would have come into uh, Quicker focus. So, um, so if I may, I'd like to have one other point. Um, just as uh, one result of uh, of Kennan's writings in forty six and forty seven was to uh, launch a concerted effort by the United States to tool up its diplomatic corps, its security corps, by training people and young people in Russian and Chinese and in the culture and the history of the Soviet Union. So we'd be better pre prepared to understand our, uh, our rival, our adversary. It seems to me, in as much as we are in a similar uh, moment, even though ch uh, China under the Chinese Communist Party is very different from the Soviet Union, it seems to me it is incumbent upon the United States to non launch an effort like the, like the one we did in the 1950s. We should be devoting significant resources in the way that the FDD, FDD has sort of retooled 
we, the United States, has has we have to devote significant more re- significant resources, increase our resources dedicated to training in men and women in Mandarin, in uh, the history, the, the great and storied history of China, so that we're in a better position to understand China's the CCP's pronouncements and the CCP's conduct. You know, one thing I just want to highlight, and you mentioned it, the extent to which international organizations in which we invited China into these international organizations, significantly the WTO, the World Trade Organization, in fact, brought them in as a developing nation, even though they're a pretty developed okay. nation, and they've retained that status, which yes. has some advantages. Um, the extent to which they, as I would argue, taken over these organizations and subverted them to a great extent. The uh, the Trump administration attempted to begin to address that, didn't do so, I think, effectively in the end. I fear that the Biden, the Biden administration is not going to. So you take the World Health Organization, which is the most obvious example of a, an international organization whose mission has been subverted. They It's been taken over by, I, I think, to a great extent uh, by the Chinese Communist Party, by China's rulers. And so it failed in this very important critical time of, 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 of this uh, pandemic that came out of China. Biden administration, I fear, is going to go back into the organization without demanding any reforms whatsoever. The UN Human Rights Council, a subverted organization, not just by China, but not least by China. It doesn't promote human rights whatsoever. And rights are discussion we're going to have in a minute. Um, we're going to probably go back into it and say, oh, once we're inside it, we can surely effectuate reform. Well, no, we've tried that many times, and we know we can't. Um, and it's a problem because the liberal, the international liberal rules-based order is increasingly becoming illiberal and operating under rules manufactured in Beijing and other authoritarian capitals. Uh, again, I think this. I think the Trump administration people like yourself were cognizant of that, didn't I didn't in the end reverse that process? I fear the Biden administration is going to make believe that this, this is not a, a serious problem. We're doing just fine in these organizations. Uh, I, I I share your I share your concerns. Um, we, as you know, Cliff, and we've talked about this uh, in November of 2020. The policy planning staff published a long paper, "The Elements of the China Challenge." It had several purposes. One of the purposes was you know, to summarize the ways in which the, the Trump administration had finally achieved a full break with the conventional wisdom. This had been happening for 10 years. Various scholars have been writing on this. We, we could name easily um, 10, 15 people on a honor roll. Um, and I do want to emphasize that, yes, um, uh, General McMaster, National Security Advisor McMaster, uh, presided over the publication of National Security Strategy in 2017. Matt Pottinger played an enormous role and presided over the publication of a China strategy paper in uh, 2020, spring 2020. In policy planning, we tried, in consistent with our mandate, as we've already discussed, to step back, give the bigger picture. Now, to the specific point you're making about China within international organizations, in the long part two of our paper, The Elements of the China Challenge, we focused on their conduct. And our job was to document, actually to take what various members of the policy plan staff had shown about inroads to CCP inroads in either functional areas and lay it all, all out. And so among other things, we have discussion of China's, um, uh, China's schemes of economic cooptation and coercion in every region of the world. Um, and we have a short discussion of the ways in which China has very, del- very steadily then burrowing its world organizations, um, incorporating them insidiously, in our view, Chinese standards, Chinese norms. I shouldn't say Chinese. You always have to distinguish between the Chinese Communist Party norms, Chinese mm. Communist Party standards, Chinese Communist Party uh, goals, ways of thinking about um, about uh, domestic politics and, and foreign affairs. And this is profoundly destructive. I mentioned the paper because uh, one of our purposes was to sort of set down a marker and uh, and crystallize the state of our knowledge 
in the fall of 2020 about uh, China's conduct. So that State Department document, and it's a State Department document, can serve as um, as a kind of touchstone. This is what we knew by the fall of 2020 about the CCP's uh, intentions, malign, and the CCP's um, efforts to achieve a kind of, um, to, to achieve an increasing hegemony around the world on behalf of uh, an agenda hostile to freedom. Right. Okay. And all right, you've mentioned freedom. And I was going to ask you this question, but I, I think you're, I think I know your answer. The, the other topics, the other issues about which you thought bigly while you're <laughs> in this job, well, well, we'll just tick them off. Uh, go ahead. Well, uh, that I thought bigly about, there's only um, China, in a way, defined yeah. our, our thinking. And I, w- I want to emphasize this. But that didn't mean turning backs on the rest of the world, because to take on the China challenge is to take on China in every region of the world. So um, when, if, for example, we're thinking about what the United States can do to promote educational and cultural exchanges with Africa. That's very important. But we we would think of that also in terms of the China challenge. When we think about strengthening the transatlantic relationship, uh, at least on policy planning, our thought was uh, the China challenge does not render uh, our, uh, our uh, historical relationship, our shared values with Europe uh, less significant. It renders it more significant because of the scope, the magnitude of, of this challenge. So all the issues, almost all the issues that um, that we dealt with were in one way or another connected to China. But really, there was only the, the other very big project that we took on policy planning was, uh, as you know, the Commission on uh, Unalienable Rights, which was housed within policy planning for which I served as executive secretary. And, and that's exactly the, my leading question was meant to lead you there. You, you mentioned freedom. China has a very different view of, uh, of, of freedom and its value, uh, and of human rights and of civil rights and other rights. And so this was something you took on. And it's very interesting and also was troubling because you and the secretary came under withering criticism before you had said a word about rights and what you were going to do before you put together the commission, before you issued a report. Um, they were um, uh, scandalized by the idea that you would go back to basics, which is, I think, what you were trying to do by speaking of unalienable rights. Unalienable rights, obviously the phrase used by the founders. And this is, I mean, it seems to me usually important and 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 easily justifiable. America, as far as I know, correct me if I'm wrong, is the only nation in the world whose creation was justified based on a concept of rights, rights that Americans believe, or at least I guess we used to believe, that no government has the ability to grant, but that every government has an obligation to secure or guarantee for its citizens. And yet, for you to reiterate this and think about this and talk about this, this was considered. I mean, they what people. I wrote a column about it myself. <laughs> people went. There were those, and I would say that not just people. The human, what we call the human rights establishment, yeah. was just just went crazy with anger and bitterness over this that you were going to take on such a thing. Two, two illustrations of your point. One. Um, I think it was within two weeks of Secretary Pompeo's announcement that he was forming this commission, something like 250 um, human rights organizations, former political officials, 99% uh, served, uh, did, did serve uh, in the Obama administration or Clinton administration, um, professors, journalists, sent an open letter to uh, Secretary Pompeo, still available online. Uh, in which they demanded that he immediately dismantle the commission (laughs) whose membership had not yet been um, named and, and use the, uh, that taxpayer money that was going to be devoted to the commission. I can tell you it's a public number. um, I think our, uh, our budget was something like $250,000. You should know that the state department's uh, annual budget is a, 
that year, 2019, I think was in the neighborhood of 51 to $52 billion. I think this is 0.0005% of State Department's budget. In any case, uh, we should be dismantled. I should start all over because we could only, um, we were bound to cause grave damage to the cause of human rights. I was, I as head of policy planning and executive secretary was summoned to Capitol Hill. I think I made five visits. In my last visit, a, uh, a congressman, I met uh, uh, four or five uh, representatives in one member's office, and one uh, congressman leaned across a narrow table and said to me something like, you, you and your secretary of state have no idea the harm you are causing to human rights. You have no idea how you're playing into the hands of the Russians and the Chinese. Well, what did he mean by that? Mm. He meant something like this. He said, um, he said, the very mandate of your commission is mixing up two things. One is universal human rights. The second is America's national traditions. Only harm could come by America looking to its national traditions and thereby encouraging others to look to their national traditions to uh, defend human rights. Now, um, I did, um, I asked uh, this congressman uh, whether he was familiar with the 1947, 1948 uh, UN report uh, that was, uh, um, supervised by the French Catholic philosopher Jacques Merite. He said, no. And I said, well, allow me to inform you that it actually adopts exactly the approach to the Universal Declaration of Human Rights that you are now decrying. What do you mean, he said? Well, when the Universal Declaration of Human Rights was being contemplated, um, uh, Merite in the UN actually convened intellectuals, scholars, philosophers from all over the world, including Muslims, uh, Hindus, Chinese, to answer the question, was it possible, was it feasible to um, draft a document that uh, different peoples and different nations could sign a document, sorry, listing human rights that uh, people from different nations and civilizations could all embrace? And here was the conclusion of the symposium. Yes, it's reasonable to hope that there is a small core of basic principles that diverse peoples and nations can affirm. But it is unreasonable to expect that diverse peoples and nations will reason to these core principles like no torture, no, um, no slavery, no arbitrary uh, detention, arrest and exile was unreasonable to expect that they would all reason to them in the same way. It would be unreasonable to expect everybody would invoke um, Locke, Montesquieu, Cicero, the Bible. But it was not unreasonable to hope that different peoples and nations turning to their own traditions would find distinct moral, philosophical, religious resources. In other words, what the United States was doing, what this independent commission was doing at Secretary Pompeo's request was exactly what the, um, was envisaged by those who drafted and originally supported the Universal Declaration, looking to our traditions to, um, to support um, the commitments that America took on in 1948, voting in favor of the Universal Declaration. And as we point out in the report, uh, report of the commission, which came out, as you know, in July of last year, we see a report is not only effort to um, inform our fellow citizens, but as an invitation to uh, peoples and nations around the world to look to their own traditions. And if I may just mention one more point, this congressman's um, uh, accusation to me actually uh, betrayed um, misunderstanding of Russia and, and, and China and a condescending attitude toward them. His implication was that any Russian who looks to the Russian tradition or any, uh, any person in the People's Republic of uh, China who looks to China's tradition will only find authoritarianism. But this, of course, is not true. 
These are the Russian tradition is rich and varied. Uh, Chinese civilization is rich and varied. Um, it is possible to turn to these traditions and find resources for, a, for affirming the rights that are laid out in the Universal Declaration of uh, Human Rights. That justification will differ from the one we produce, which, as you, as you said, is grounded in America's Declaration of Independence uh, and our belief that uh, the purpose of government is to secure unalienable rights. But we have every confidence that other nations will find, will find their own resources in their own way to affirming the idea that begins, uh, which is the point of departure for the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, that human beings are born equal in dignity, endowed with inherent and inalienable rights, as the, as the UBHR says in its first article. So it would be comforting to think that the only reason there was this anger and outrage at the formation of the commission, and then after the commission issued its report, was that there was simply a misunderstanding. They hadn't <laughs> read enough. They hadn't listened to your lectures. If they had, they would have all been happy about it. I got to tell you, Peter, I think it's insufficient. I think there's much more to it than that. I think there are those, um, and I guess uh, I have to say mainly on the left, who absolutely repudiate the, uh, the, the, the concept of rights being the claims an individual uh, gets to make against the state, that the state can intrude on my life in these ways, that they rather have a notion that, any, that the government, of course, grants rights. That's who does so. And they can grant any right they want. And they want to be able, because it's convenient for them, to confuse and conflate um, a right such as freedom of speech with what one might call an entitlement, a social good, something you might want to provide for everybody in the country, but that doesn't make it a right in the sense that the founders understood it, in the sense that you and I understand it, but by your saying that, you're contradicting what they want to do and their power. Maybe you can, uh, first of all, uh, do you disagree with me? And second, uh, can you say it better than I just have? I, I don't know if I can say it better than you can, but uh, I agree with you and how. After, <laughs> after all, um, what prompted Secretary Pompeo to, uh, to create the commission? Uh, I wasn't privy to any such conversations, but I strongly doubt uh, President Trump summoned the Secretary of State, said, Mike, you know what we need at the State Department? We need a commission on unalienable rights. Really, the, um, the impetus for the Commission on Unalienable Rights came from the Secretary himself. It uh, stemmed from his permission, his perception that uh, rights that are inherent in all persons, this idea is deeply rooted at the very found in the American tradition at the very foundation. And yet it's in a state of crisis. Why is it in a state of crisis? In significant measure, Cliff, for the reason you just uh, identified, there's a confusion out there that uh, somehow all rights are human rights, all, all, or there's a cynical effort out there to transform debatable political preferences into claims of rights. Because, of course, if you have a political preference or a policy for which you have reasons and arguments, well, you and I can debate that in the public sphere. But if you can recharacterize your policy preference mm. as a right, a human right, well, a human right is universal, objective, and necessary. And to object to a human right is immoral. So there had been... Um, and one can see this for decades, um, a battle out there in the public sphere to transform uh, debatable policy preferences. I don't say they're wrong, but debatable into inarguable uh, rights claims. And part of the task of the Commission on Inalienable Rights was to distinguish between human rights, the rights you get just because you're a human being, and those other rights, we can call them civil rights, political rights. We can call them, there's another kind of right, an entitlement, something that, that through legislation, perhaps, we say the government uh, is obliged to provide for all citizens. 
we distinguish between those, let's call them now positive rights, a right a government can grant you from um, those human rights, which are everywhere and always valid, even though governments uh, trample on them. Let me give you one example so, so, so everybody understands. Under certain circumstances, the Constitution provides uh, uh, people in the United States the right to a trial by jury. That's a constitutional right create, created by our Charter of Government. Um, they don't do it that way in Europe. This is not to say that due process isn't protected. But in Europe, in the continental system in general, in criminal trials, there's thought to be better ways of securing uh, due process for all than jury trials. So the jury trial is a right granted by the American Constitution. We don't say Europe is violating um, rights because they don't provide jury trials. Although I must say, sometimes the Europeans say that we're violating human rights by providing jury trials. But not, to, but not to confuse things. The point is, some rights are provided to everybody by, uh, by government. They are contingent. They needn't be in place. But human rights, the rights laid out in the Universal Declaration of Human Rights or in our tradition specifically, unalienable rights, those are the rights, again, as you nicely said at the very beginning, that um, whose existence uh, is not owed to some action by government, but rather whose existence obliges government to refrain from certain kinds of actions. Okay, so I've got two more questions, one re- one related, and it's a hard one. But you recently wrote a, a, a very interesting piece called Reclaiming Common Ground, Racism, Kendi, and the Capitol Riot. <laughs> and the reason it's re- very related to this is because one way to look at the United States is we're the, we're the country that is, as I mentioned earlier, as you discussed, that established that human rights are the obligation of our government and really every government to secure. And that doesn't mean we have done it perfectly or even well. It means we believe this is the obligation, but no other nation that I know of was created on this, that basis. And I don't think there's any other nation that exists for that purpose. And instead, what you have largely, I think, dominating the campuses now, increasingly dominating the campus, is the idea that there are no worse offenders of human rights than the United States, that we are based on systemic violations of human rights. We didn't come up with a system for securing them. We didn't come up with concepts of human rights. We're the vi- we are a society that should be in full-time repentance because we're worse than anyone else. And I have to say, as somebody who's Spent time in a lot of different countries in the world. <laughs> Student in the Soviet Union, as a foreign correspondent in Africa. The U.S. Is, has many sins, but there's no other country I know of that can say, look, we've done a better job on this than you have. So there, in a way, there's a parochialism to this to say that because human rights have not achieved all we'd like them to achieve in the United States, whatever that is, that therefore we should say we're the worst. and by comparison, everybody else is, is better than we are. Uh, yeah, I'm, um, I'm in full agreement with you. Um, we, are, we are witnessing a, a kind of slander of the United States being incorporated into the, into the conventional wisdom, including on uh, uh, campus. I, I consider the 1619 Project at the New York Times to have, uh, mm-hmm. to have contributed to this. You know, our, our report came out in uh, mid-July, so really amid uh, amid the riots um, that were peaceful protests, which deteriorated into violent riots as a result of the um, the death, the killing of uh, of George Floyd. And many people at that time were asking, "Where does the United States get off uh, championing human rights, publishing such a report?" amid these riots. And in a brief prefatory remark, but elsewhere in the report, uh, we wrote um, that we must always distinguish between liberal democracies that fall short of their principles, that's all liberal democracies, and, um, and regimes that repudiate the very idea of, uh, 
of human beings being born equal in dignity and possessing uh, inherent and inalienable rights. Um, yes, we, we, we have always fallen short that a country was founded, um, uh, you could say, and partly in, in sin with by giving legal sanction to slavery. But as you said, we, we were are for sure the first nation ever anywhere on the planet that was um, founded in explicit, on the explicit basis, explicitly founded on the basis of a universal principle that was applicable to all human beings everywhere. I should, we should be quick to add, that doesn't mean that the United States has the right or even the obligation to bring freedom everywhere else. We have an, we certainly have an interest and we have an interest in championing it. That, that's a separate matter. Um, a second point, and it's very important. Um, Aristotle, uh, uh, says in the politics effectively that all serious study of politics is comparative politics. Mm-hmm. It's important to know what your regime stands for. It's important to appreciate how your regime falls short. But you can't properly evaluate your falling, your, un, your inevitable falling short of your regime's principle unless you see how other human beings organize themselves, the advantages and disadvantages of other forms of government or the advantages and disadvantages of other kinds of democracies or oligarchies, or for that matter, monarchies and tyrannies. So um, the slander being directed against the United States, that we are systematically racist, that is racist to our core, it seems to me is based upon a deformation of American history. America was not founded in 1619. America was not founded. The Declaration was not written and the Constitution was not created. in order to uh, um, preserve slavery, to justify slavery. Um, and any, it seems to me, any reasonable understanding of American history uh, would reach the conclusion that, uh, that our history is best understood as, uh, as successive efforts to understand better and realize in practice the founding promise of the rights inherent in all human beings from uh, from uh, the struggle, the successful struggle to end slavery, Abraham Lincoln's recovery of the Declaration of Independence, um, the efforts to win the right to vote for women, uh, Martin Luther King's role, the Supreme Court's role in um, uh, winning civil rights for African-Americans and successive struggles always are either explicitly invoking the principles of the Declaration of Independence or believing themselves to repudiate repudiate them are actually still invoking those principles of individual freedom and uh, and, and human equality. One more question that you that you that you sparked from me when you talk about individual freedom. So the the founders saw rights as inhering in the individual. What you hear increasingly, not least on the campuses, is a sort of echo of Marxism, where rights don't inhere in the individual. Rights inhere in groups, and different groups have different rights. In strict Marxism and Leninism, that meant the proletariat had rights. The aristocracy, the bourgeoisie, the kulaki, the rich peasants, they have no rights whatsoever. Different groups, but again, the same concept of right that you don't have rights as an individual. You have rights as a member of a group only. That strikes me as dangerous. It strikes me as dangerous as well, and we should have emphasized. Um, this is not only uh, contrary to the principles of America's founding principles and constitutional government, it's contrary to the principles of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. The Universal Declaration of Human Rights starts with the individual. Rights in the first place are endowed in individuals. Now, if we respect a person, have to respect the institutions that form him. So the Universal Declaration of, Indi- Universal Declaration of Human Rights certainly recognizes uh, quite explicitly the family as, uh, as the essential social unit and insists that every person has the right to a nationality. 
But that's a right that's still, it's grounded in uh, a person. So, you know, one, to go back to an earlier question, Cliff, we were, um, uh, one of the reasons that our, uh, our the commission's work was, um, was denounced even before we began, because it was said that uh, our purpose was to uh, strip women and the LGBTQ community of their rights. Nothing could be farther from the truth. Um, but that having been said, the subject of our report was actually neither women's rights nor LGBTQ rights, or for that matter, it also wasn't, um, the focus of our report wasn't Muslim rights or Christian rights or Jewish rights. The focus of our report, however, embraced all those people on every page, I think, we affirm that our particular subject and the, uh, and the subject of unalienable rights, the rights of all members of the human family. In other words, that means without regard to your religion, without regard to, to, uh, to your race, without regard to your ethnicity, without regard to your sexual orientation, gender. Our subject was those rights you get just because you're born a human being. In other words, um, uh, we didn't want something. Uh, our, our subject um, was not what has, as an empirical matter, divided this country so much, identity politics and the idea that um, rights are parceled out on the basis of group. Our subject matter was the rights that you get uh, just because you're a person. And we should say, I can't help throwing this in, um, without realizing that so many proponents of identity politics are, are really arguing in a vein that um, that really is crystallized in the thought of Karl Marx. I mean, who, after all, was it that emphasized the idea that the world societies always have been divided into an oppressed class and an oppressor class? That's one proposition. But the follow-up proposition is this: the oppressed class is wiser and has uh, has seized political reality more clearly and is endowed with greater, Marx would have said, prerogatives. So really the distribution, the um, the division of, of, of American society into identity groups really goes along a single line, oppressor and oppressed class. There's one oppressor class. Everybody else is some kind of oppressed class. And the more oppressed you are, the greater are your rights, privileges, and 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 uh, prerogatives. This is extraordinarily dangerous, and for the sake of um, that civic concord, that actually is essential to um, uh, not only uh, protecting rights at home, but certainly to um, defending America's interests abroad. I think we um, we would be well advised to do everything we can to return to. Um, our founding understanding of the unalienable rights in, in every person. All right. My final question. Your, your successor at uh, as director of policy planning is uh, Salman Ahmed. Uh, his background includes since the National Security Council, but also, I believe, 15 years at the UN. I just want to know, did you leave a letter for him? And if so, can you tell us what it said? Uh, <laughs> uh, I, I did not leave a letter for him, but we had a long conversation. Um, Shortly after, um, uh, shortly after he became director, and uh, I, I guess I, um, uh, I, I, over the course of that hour, I gave a long, meandering, somewhat convoluted exhortation to uh, avoid trivia. <laughs> Peter, it is great to see you. Wonderful to talk to you. Um, I, I'm very uh, delighted, maybe relieved to know that your adventure in government has left you no worse or way. <laughs> and thank you all, everybody who is also listening. I hope this was as, as interesting, edifying, and enjoyable for you as it was for me. Join us again here on Foreign Policy. Thank you for listening to Foreign Policy. If you found the program worthwhile, we suggest you subscribe to Foreign Policy on iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, Stitcher, or wherever you prefer to listen to your podcasts. 
Send us your feedback, your questions, your ideas to foreignpolicy at fdd.org. For more information about this episode and others and about our distinguished guests, visit us online at fdd.org. Until next time, I'm Cliff May, and you've been listening to Foreign Policy.